Kayforth Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI, and this is In AI We Trust. Welcome back to In AI We Trust. This week, we are so pleased to have the return of our co-host, Kay Firth Butterfield. Kay, welcome back. It's delightful to see you. Tell us about your travels. Oh, thank you. Well, I suppose the first thing I should talk about is, is that it's Davos week. And um, sadly, I'm not there this, this year. I was really looking forward to going because um, it's sunny. Um, whereas normally, of course, you have the snow and the ice to contend with, as well as the fantastic conversations that Davos um, brings on every street corner and within the conference center. Uh, but, you know, just following it, there's lots of really good stuff coming out of it. And today we had our responsible AI main session with uh, luminaries such as Vilas Dar, who's already been on our podcast, and Joanna Shields, who will be on our podcast, and Stuart Russell as well. So that's sort of the high point of my, my week at the moment. But as you say, I've been away and um, I was in Cannes for the AI festival there, which was just really rewarding. Obviously, you know, any excuse to be able to go to Cannes, but um, it was also a very interesting festival because they, all, they had exhibits as well as the speeches. And they brought together some of the most important people thinking about artificial intelligence, not just from our side, but also from actually the creation of the tools. So it was very well worthwhile and um, had a wonderful time. What have you been doing, Miriam? Well, other than just missing our conversations, uh, we've been trying to keep busy. We had uh, a wonderful badge session last week, our fourth badge session, where we get to hear from some of the titans in tech uh, who are also leading in responsible AI efforts. Google and Microsoft talked to our executives about best practices, and that's always such an engaging and helpful conversation. Uh, so I know that was uh, well received by our participants, and I I certainly enjoyed it. Looking forward to our next panel, which will be where we get to introduce the executives to key lawyers who are leading in this space. And it's always such an interesting conversation. And part of that effort is showing how the lawyer can and should be your partner in achieving responsible AI. So not to think of the lawyer as who you call when there's a mess to clean up, but rather bringing them on early so they can help you navigate and be your partner in achieving the best AI possible. Uh, but the other thing that's been fun is the launch of the of NIAC, the National AI Advisory Committee. It was a privilege to meet with the Secretary of Commerce and the members of the White House staff uh, who are leading on this effort, Dr. Alondra Nelson and, uh, and the head of the AI Initiative Office. It was um, wonderful in particular to meet with other colleagues of ours who are leading in this space and I'll be uh, working with on this committee. And I think it will be so similar to what we're trying to achieve here on our podcast and our respective organizations in helping to make very practical, tangible efforts and step forwards in achieving effective AI, but also making sure that it is trustworthy and inclusive in order for it to be that AI that, that it needs to be. So that's mm -hmm. been fun. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm sure Bina will also have some tips and tricks for us as to how to make move from conversation to actuality in this area. Yes, as you know very well, Bina Amanth is a, an expert in trustworthy AI. She's written the book on it, and she's the executive director at the Global AI Institute at Deloitte. So let's jump in. This week, we're delighted to be joined by Bina Amamath, who is an award-winning senior executive with extensive global experience in AI and digital transformation. Bina is currently executive director of the Global Deloitte AI Institute, where she leads trustworthy and ethical technology at Deloitte. She has also recently published an excellent book Trustworthy AI, which helps businesses navigate trust and ethics in artificial intelligence. Prior to joining Deloitte, Bina was a founder and the CEO of the nonprofit Humans for AI, an organization dedicated to increasing diversity in artificial intelligence. Bina also serves on the board of Anita B. Org, a global nonprofit organization advancing women in STEM, supporting inclusive technology, and also serves on the advisory board at Cal Poly College of Engineering. Bina's experience in AI and digital transformation is extensive, spanning e-commerce, finance, marketing, telecom, retail, software products, services, and industry domains, and a number of Silicon Valley startups. Additionally, Bina has won numerous awards from UC Berkeley 2018, Woman of the Year in Business Analytics, San Francisco Business Times 2017, Most Influential Woman in, Bay, in the Bay Area, and WITI's Women in Technology Hall of Fame. Bina, it's so wonderful for you to join us on our show today. And we're delighted to hear your words of wisdom. So to start, you're a well-recognized thought leader in the trustworthy AI and technology space. What sparked your interest in trustworthy AI initially? And why do you find trustworthy technology development to be such an important use of both your time and the resources of the companies that you advise. Hey, thank you so much. It's an honor to be on the show with you and Miriam. And uh, I, I, I'm, I constantly learn from your shows as well. So what sparked my interest was really, you know, I'm, I'm um, a computer scientist by training. And uh, uh, I have always been in the business world, uh, building out uh, data analytics, business intelligence, and now AI products and solutions and taking them to market. And so it's always been about the value creation by using the, these technologies, right? And um, uh, value creation can be in terms of cost savings or optimization, or it can be in terms of new products or new revenue opportunities. But as a AI uh, is also something that you know I studied when when I, I was uh, you know I was in the university and 
it was so vague and so far away that we could only imagine all that AI could do. And, you know, I feel so fortunate that it's becoming real in my own lifetime. And having being able to use it hands-on is actually an honor and privilege. But as this journey started, I started realizing that, you know, the, this technology is still very new. There are a lot of things that can be used for, you know, whether it is for doing social good, but also for, you know, improving business value. And, um, and uh, I realized that there, there are also side effects of these technologies, right? Uh, especially a technology as powerful as AI, where the technology itself is still being researched and still being, is still growing from in research labs and think tanks. There is also... Uh, uh, the impact of that technology, which we don't really know about or have not fully thought about. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it um, bothered me that we were not putting enough effort into it beyond just having these uh, head clickbait style headlines and uh, marketing talks, but not so much on, you know, how, how do you actually solve for, for it? in the context of the businesses who are driving this technology forward and scaling it out at, at, at a global level. Um, and the example I like to give is, you know, of uh, think about when uh, car engines were invented. There were, you know, we, we are in that era now where, you know, think about when, you know, the car engine is that first stream where, you know, whether it's machine learning, deep learning, neural net, you know, those, that technology, the core technology itself is being, still being developed. It's not fully developed. It is still being worked on and, you know, still maturing in the lab. And so that, think of that as a car engine, that first stream where the car engine is still fully developing. But we're using that in the real world to drive, for, uh, you know, because it's faster, it helps us get from point A to point B faster than riding horses. So we are using a not fully developed car engine in the real world to and put a car body around it and using it in the real world because it's still providing some value. And then there is that third stream, which is really, you know, uh, th there are no speed limits. The roads have not been fully developed. The lanes have not been drawn out. Uh, there are no seat belts. Uh, Nobody is talking about carbon footprint. Right. So there are all these side effects that this cool new technology that's getting us to, you know, point P faster, that it, the side effects are still happening. And each of these streams are still moving, you know, are accelerating at different paces. And I just don't think there's enough acceleration happening in that third stream, which is, you know, what I put under the umbrella of trustworthy AI is, you know, whether it's the ethical implications uh, or whether it's the regulations and compliance and best practices, you know, everything that needs to happen to make this technology trustworthy. And so, uh, you know, so it sparked my interest because, you know, you can build the best AI model, but at the end of the day, if the end users don't trust it, that adoption will not be high enough. And in my mind, that is a fail, failure for the technology. So it was important for me to start thinking about that third stream, right? What are the speed limits that need to be there? What are the, some of the regulations that need to happen? What are some of the best practices that we can learn? And uh, that piqued my interest because as a, as a, a technology optimist, 
I think it is important to think about the side effects and address it proactively so that AI itself can reach its full potential. Otherwise, we are always going to be bogged down when we start discovering these side effects as we go along, right? So I think uh, it was, uh, you know, to for AI's own, you know, progress, it's important for us to talk about the trustworthy aspects of it. It's such a great business case as to why this is uh, an issue that companies need to not just a, can do or should, but need to think about the responsibility, the trustworthiness of their AI. And I'm also really uh, a fan of the automotive illustration you use. Uh, and I think it's also a powerful analogy because it explains why abstinence is not an option in this space. Nobody can say, I don't know how to build AI, and so I can't help regulate it, uh, be a lawyer advising on it, be a policy. Everyone has a role to play, just as we all are affected and use cars. Um, so such great flags as to why these are issues that we all need to understand and engage in. But before we get to the flip side, the downside of AI, really want to uh, take a moment to explore your optimism. It's clear some, that this is a tool AI that you think will and can benefit society. Uh, we heard your optimism in the keynote, UN AI for Good, the 100 ways AI will change our world. We saw it in your Deloitte bio when you have written, quote, you thrive on envisioning and architecting how data, AI and tech in general can make our world better, an easier place to live for all humans. That's enthusiasm and we share your enthusiasm. So can you tell our listeners, what are the key ways that you have seen AI already improve our society and what are some of the exciting tools that we'll get from AI on the horizon that you're seeing? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, look, I think um, uh, a lot, a lot of it is just you know how um, our smartphones have made our lives better, right? I uh, I'm old enough to remember where we used to actually you know look at physical maps and map out the most optimized path to get from some place to the other, and then you know before AI came into the picture, we still we could still print out the maps and you know carry those directions with us uh, but you know now you can see where the high traffic areas are the alternate path is you know so that's like just one of the simplest ones right and um, that you you can think of you know how it's made just a life easier the, uh, another way that you know that um, um, I see it improving our lives even today is, uh, you know, being able to have conversations like this. And if there was, a, a, you know, an accessibility issue, a, a, you know, it could actually generate the text so somebody could read it, right? And you don't have to, uh, you know, have a human doing that um, uh, transcription or doing translation. We could be talking in different languages and it's doing real-time translation. So, you know, those all seem very simple and mundane, but if you think about it, uh, you know, it has improved to a large extent the th how we live, right? Remembering phone numbers, remembering directions is not necessarily 
you know, uh, is not necessarily as enjoyable as being able to have a real-time translator conversation into uh, with somebody from a uh, from another country who speaks a completely different language. Imagine if you can have a meaningful conversation with that person where each one is sticking to their native language. So I think there are a lot of mundane things that AI has already, you know, that helped us with. And there are a lot of exciting things that that it's uh, well, uh, that AI is doing, which we may not be aware of, right? Uh, AI is being used to uh, identify kidnapping victims or human trafficking victims. It's used to prevent illegal logging in our forests. Um, th there are so uh, it's uh, it's impacting how uh, education is provided. So for me, all these are very exciting and big ambitious goals and AI is making slow and steady progress in those areas. Uh, from a business perspective, uh, you know, there is obviously, you know, AI is impacting both, you know, top line goals and bottom line savings. It's, it's uh, from both sides, right? AI can help with optimization and cost savings, but it can also provide new revenue opportunities, which would have been impossible without AI. So it's improving worker productivity. It is uh, making uh, humans more productive and uh, it, you know, focus on the parts of aspects of the job that uh, really need that human creativity or human intelligence. So you know, there is so much that AI is doing in our day-to-day -day lives already. And I see a future where it can do even more as long as we can build it in a trustworthy way. <laughs> Thank you, Bina. And as you say, as long as we can build it in a trustworthy way, and there's always a flip side of almost everything that we see as the benefits of, of AI. And, you know, both Miriam and I share your enthusiasm for AI and what it can do. But um, AI technology also poses, as you mentioned earlier, the significant risks and we saw that you had a recent article for the Harvard Business Review um, and talked about risks varying from discriminatory facial recognition and black box, out, black, black box algorithms with life-altering consequences. As a result, as the title of that article was, everyone in your organization needs to understand AI ethics implies it's clear that you believe that understanding AI ethics is crucial to mitigating its harms. Can you tell us how this education of employees works in practice? What are some of the problems organizations face in this endeavor? And how can companies overcome some of these hurdles? Yeah, I, I, you know, and I, I truly believe that for AI's own progress and for us to solve some of these sticky problems around ethics and responsible use of AI, we, we do need to empower every human being. Uh, but let's start with the companies. Let's start with an existing structure, with an organization. And, it, you know, there is a belief that, you know, you can just hire an ethicist or a chief AI ethics officer and it's their problem to solve for. And that just won't work. And here's the reason why, because AI is not just restricted to one department or one function within your organization. Even if you are an AI product company and you know you're using AI in your products, 
uh, I'm sure there are, you know, um, vendors from whom you buy tools for your, your recruitment optimization or for uh, for using uh, for accounting, right? So every function within your business has some exposure to AI, even though your company may not be building those tools, they might be buying those tools. So how do you make sure that every employee within the organization is empowered to ask the right question? Is Has that basic AI fluency to be, uh, and then know what are the principles that the company is absolutely uh, aligned behind from an ethics perspective, and then how does it translate into action? And the best way this works, um, Kay, is when you provide the training, the education from a context-specific view, right? If you are a data scientist or an engineer, a highly technical uh, you know, work uh, that's in your scope, then you probably need to more technical level understanding of how to mitigate some of the ethical risks. But if you are, say, a, a HR person who is responsible for recruiting and is evaluating AI vendors who provide recruitment tools, there is a set of questions you could potentially ask. So, you know, the, the best practice over there is to make sure every employee understands the basic principles and is trained in the context of their role meaning the way you would explain AI, the way you would explain AI ethics to a finance person should be diff, ideally different than the way you explain it for an HR person and use the examples from their function to make it more relevant for, for them, right? So I think, um, you know, it, it's not, it, it, it will just fail if you make it just one person's job and put one person in charge for you know, making sure every, uh, every, um, every product that you buy or build is ethical. I think that is too big a scope and it doesn't bring that domain expertise that's needed to ask some of these questions. Um, so uh, so you know, um, I fundamentally believe that's the number one step every organization should do. Well, thank you for that really helpful both thoughtful on a, a top level uh, vision, but also very practical advice on what a company, what an executive needs to think about. And it's clear in your answer uh, that there are so many ways that AI has become prevalent in our business operations in companies, small and global alike. Uh, you've also written about this in a recent article, who is accountable when AI fails? And the difficulties and nuances of contextualizing accountability in AI is so complicated and interesting. We'd love to get your thoughts on how you recommend people address this issue. And relatedly, um, and apologies that it makes it a complicated question, but it strikes me that this is related to an earlier point you made about our lack of speed limits and lanes, our lack of laws in this space. So I'd love to also get your thoughts on what should the, the traffic laws look like in AI if you were to have your way with um, the relevant lawmakers? There's a both very big complex questions. So I'll start with the accountability part. So, you know, I believe that it's important uh, to think, let me take a step back. So every project, whether it's acquiring a new software or whether it's building, you know, your own uh, AI tool, 
you know, there, there is always a, you know, you follow a project plan and there's always a section which focuses on the ROI of doing this project, right? Or acquiring this new product. I think it's fundamentally important to add an additional column there, which is about what are the ways this could go wrong? Because it is, because AI is so context specific, it is uh, people who are deeply ingrained, who are the subject matter experts, domain experts who will be able to proactively think about the ways it could go wrong. And uh, being able to track it is absolutely important. And one of the best ways to get more people engaged is to proactively also add a section on who is accountable for it when it goes wrong. Because that just raises the visibility and you know the priority of making sure that you are, have thought about the negative impacts of this potential product, and uh, you know is and we've seen different ways this has played out in the real world, right? When uh, we we've seen the CEOs of the companies being called for a Senate hearing, we've seen data scientists get fired by for building you know biased algorithms, we've seen uh, you know the the CIOs or the chief compliance officers coming into the picture. So I think depending on you know the negative risks or potential risks, right, where it falls in that range, it is important to define: is it the data scientist who built it? Is it the product manager or product owner who is designing? You know, who's come up with the product idea? Who is responsible for? It, who is accountable for it when it goes wrong. It drives a natural level uh, of engagement when, when you have to put somebody's name to it. And, uh, you know, the, uh, and it also forces you to think about the negative impact. Uh, so I think, uh, and again, accountability, just like AI is not a one size fits all. It's going to depend on the use case, the product, the project, depending on how high the risk is, it is going to depend on that. Uh, in terms of laws, I think, um, you know, and there, there are several frameworks and acts and, you know, recommendations out there. And I honestly think if we need to solve for it, those are all great starting points. But if we need to solve for it, you have to go into the depth. Because here's the thing, you know, AI is a very broad term, as we all know. And it is going to be very context specific. So the speed limit, uh, so you know, we can take the example of speed limit and uh, you know, it is going to be different based on the context, based on the geographical, cultural nuances. So speed limit is a great example where you know, the, way, uh, the speed limit in different parts of the world are very different. So, and, you know, and that's, that's okay. Why are we expecting that AI will just have one speed limit or one specific law for every possible scenario. That is a great marketing and catchy headline, but it cannot be solved when you are at that level. You have to go down to the depth to be able to solve for it. And there are some easy ways, you know, you can get started, which is what my entire book is about, is really, you know, how do you even get started? You don't have to think about it at this very high level. Start with the use case, start with the specific context and think about what are the risks and how do you mitigate it? And when you think about laws and regulations, think about the existing regulations. You know, there are industries out there which are highly regulated 
And you just have to think about, you know, what are the impacts of AI and how do we extend this existing regulation to, uh, to st uh, start mitigating some of the additional risks that AI brings to the table, right? It is about updating existing regulations for the existing industries. Now, AI and other digital technologies have, so most of this are, you know, are industries that have existed 30 years before, right? But with AI and other technologies, there are completely new industries that have come into play, that have formed. There was no, you know, social media as a business that, that existed, you know, 40 years ago, right? It was, uh, but it exists as a business, it exists as an industry. And those will probably be completely new regulations that come because it is a brand new industry and the nuances and the way AI is being used is going to be different. But there are things you can learn from the other industries which can be applied. And it is, it is I, I think we make the mistake when we talk about it at a very high level and we assume that it's a one size fits all, which it absolutely is not, not for the use of it, not for the regulations. Ina, thank you so much for that. And uh, you mentioned your book, and we've already mentioned two articles that you've written. You're very prolific in helping us with solving some of these challenges. And so I wanted to move on from accountability to trust. And your article published just this month on why is solving for trust in AI so challenging? In that article, you said that AI technology has grown beyond the laboratory, and we've already talked about that, and is now in that phase where organizations are contending with how to maximize the technology and get its greatest value. But of course, you also note that there are common stumbling blocks that organizations face. And I wondered, you know, what are those impediments? What the, are their cause? And how can we begin to solve, organizations begin to solve for that thing, the AI trust issue? Yeah, and, you know, I'll put it into uh, two categories. Just like I said, you know, make a distinction between companies that have existed 30 years before versus now. You know, there, there are, um, uh, you know, that's a distinction you need to make to be able to solve for trust. The other distinction you need to make is, um, you know, the big tech gets um, blamed a lot for, you know, and it, it seems like they need, they are responsible for fixing all the ethical issues or they are the ones. Of course, you know, they have, uh, they have uh, responsibility there, but it's also the companies that are using the tools. So there are companies that build the AI tools, but there are companies that consume the tool. And each one is equally responsible to think about those ethical impacts. It is not going to be fixed by just the ones that build the tools, right? So with that uh, nuance, I would say, if you are just a consumer, a buyer of AI tools, you need to, uh, as an organization, you need to fundamentally think about what are the ways this tool, you know, be able to ask those questions. What data sets were used to train this? What are, uh, you know, were, were there any data gaps? Were, uh, you know, are there any scenarios which were not tested? And how will it uh, be used in the environment with the data that I have within my organization, right? 
uh, and if you are building the AI tool, you need to think of the different ways it can be used in different industries and what are some of the things that can be that can go wrong and proactively add the guardrails, right? Um, so, Kate, okay, going back to your question, with that broader context, going back to your question, you know, I think uh, the impediments are going to be different based on where you are in your AI journey as an organization, whether you are an AI tool builder versus an AI tool consumer and acknowledging those differences. Um, right now, the prevalent myth is it's a one size fits all, right? There is going to be one regulation, one speed limit defined and everybody follows it. And I, th I don't think that's that's going to be um, that's going to help us move forward. So acknowledging and realizing the nuance of how to solve for it, that that is the first one. The second step is assuming that uh, you need to be able to solve it perfectly. I think today the problem is you know companies just hesitate because they think about ethics as a philosophical or a more of a legal and compliance. Whereas I believe it is core to building trust within AI, right? So, you know, to get started because you might not make it perfect, but, you know, it is going to be dependent on the metrics you define. One of the common myths you hear is about, you know, how, you know, algorithms are highly biased. And they are, that's how, you know, that's how they're meant to be, right? To be able to uh, do some predictive analysis. So it's not about building those perfectly fair algorithms in every scenario. It's about defining what metric of fairness is acceptable for my organization for my in this specific scenario, right? And the highly controversial one is, you know, obviously around facial recognition and, uh, you know, biased uh, facial recognition algorithms being used uh, to flag somebody, uh, you know, somebody as a criminal or not. You know, that is a terrible scenario. You know, the acceptance rate for bias in that scenario is, should be, you know, absolutely, you know, well-tested and it should not be, should not be out there. But if you're using that same facial recognition algorithm at the same point with it at traffic lights to identify human trafficking victims, and there it is, you know, the, the it is still only rec able to recognize say, 40% of the victims as opposed to, you know, 100%. But it is still 40% better than just human eyesight or humans being able to do it. So the metric there is, do we still want to use that algorithm, even though it is biased and it recognizes only 40% of the victims? Uh, you know, do we still want to use it or do we want to keep aspiring towards that 75%? Right. At what point is it acceptable? Because it is still 40% better than human eyesight, and you're still rescuing 40% of the victims. Yes, you're missing 60%, but you know, do we start with the 40%? Is that an acceptable rate? So it really, really depends on the context and understanding the context, defining the metrics of acceptability is good. Uh, uh, a friend of mine was giving this, ex, uh, you know, of um, uh, you know, pilot errors, right? Like, uh, yeah, the, and he was saying, you know, we, we accept um, human pilot error is acceptable, but we are critical of AI flying error because we want it to be absolutely perfect. And which is fine. The 
metrics might be different, but you know, you still have to define it, right? You cannot just say, oh, we want it to be perfectly fair. We want it to be perfect, but you have to look at it from the context of the use case of when, you know, what are the metrics for that use case and then measure to that. That sounds exactly spot on. Thank you. I hope everyone's listening to um, your really important points about the context and debunking this notion of perfection um, and how much better we can operate if we know that, that that's not a goal and that's not even feasible. <laughs> what, does, uh, we, what does this context call for and, and looking at the AI within that context? Uh, and, and as you spell out so many of these important le lessons, it, it leads me to think about the book, uh, Trustworthy AI, A Business Guide for Navigating Trust and Ethics in AI that you wrote. I understand it also has a very notable forward um, by our own Kay Firth Butterfield that um, everyone should note as well. And I would love to know, you, you don't have a lot of spare time. It's not like you're looking for extra tasks. You're writing a lot of articles. You're doing the business of advising companies and, and, and figuring out how to answer these solutions day in, day out. What led you to want to write this book? Um, can we take a step back and tell us when you're talking about the title of Trustworthy AI, what does that mean to you? Um, and what do you hope people take away when they read your book? Yeah, I think there are three key takeaways, I, I hope, uh, you know, and it is specifically targeted at organizations. It's not, uh, you know, for, for, it's not really targeted at individuals. It's targeted towards employees or, you know, uh, people who work within an organizational construct because the big takeaway I want to, uh, uh, you know, everybody to take is that you can do something you really don't need to wait for that ethicist or the AI ethics officer. You can do something. And it provides a base level understanding of ethics and trust in the context of an organization, right? So I've used real examples, some based on my own experience on, you know, how it can, how the, the ethics scenarios can manifest, say, within an HR function versus an engineering function. So there is a basic level of understanding you can get with those examples. And then, you know, the, uh, the one thing that I hope they all take away is that, yes, we can do something. We can start asking these questions and we can start putting in these guardrails in place. Um, and even if it is just 50% of the guardrails, I believe it's a good start because today that just doesn't get considered, right? So that's the number one. And number two is, you know, uh, it's not going to be a one size fit all. So I hope everybody understands that AI itself is so context specific that the solutions for solving for its risk is going to be context specific. So when you read a headline or when you see somebody, you know, spelling all doom and gloom, think about it in the context of how your organization, how you might be using AI. Like we hear about, again, bias and in AI in the healthcare context. Now, you know, healthcare is a big, big industry and there, there is AI being used, you know, for patient care and in that case, bias, terrible. But there is AI being used for predicting MRI machine make failure so that you can proactively fix it and prevent, you know, patient delays, right? In that case, bias, uh, not so much, but for the trust aspect of it, instead of the bias, 
uh, bias dimension, you should be thinking about the reliability of that algorithm. You should be thinking about, you know, does it expose any security vulnerabilities because now there is a software running this machine. It needs to think about the future of work aspect. You know, you are automating parts of a job that was done by a technician. Uh, you know, what is that role going to look like when this role has so much free time, right? We would hope that the need for MRIs doesn't go up, uh, but, you know, but what is this person supposed to do? So it, need, it has the dimension of future of work and how do you make sure those roles are rethought? So it really depends on the context and it is not going to be a one size fits all. So don't fall for every headline. Uh, that's number two. And number three is, you know, really making, uh, you know, gaining that basic fluency uh, by yourself or, you know, providing feedback to your organization to, you know, make sure every employee is fluent. Being able to ask those questions, being able to engage with your leadership is, is, is a key factor. And the reason I'm targeting organizations is because, you know, that's a structure that already exists that's a construct that already provides boundaries because to solve for ai ethics for trustworthy ai you need to define the boundaries the context right and then it's easy to solve for it then it's easy to define the metrics it's easy to measure track and solve so you know the organization provides a structure a construct to have a boundary and then you can solve in the context of that boundaries. So that's why it's targeted at organizations, but really anybody can read the book and get a basic understanding of the AI ethics. But my hope is that at least if we can start at organizational level, we would start making progress as opposed to, you know, I really want us to move from just talking about it to actually solving for it. Absolutely, here, here, Bina, we all want to move from talking about it to actually solving it. And of course, I am sure that I'm not alone in people listening to this um, by wanting to know what the next book will be. But let me actually take you back to before writing the book, before joining Deloitte and you founding a nonprofit Humans for AI. Something that resonated with us from the organization's website was your statement, AI will impact all humans. For AI to improve human lives equally, we need diverse teams building and managing it. This ethos be behind humans for AI and the issue of increasing diversity and inclusion in tech and STEM generally is something we often discuss here and at Equal AI and at the forum. So we'd love to hear what motivated you to create the organization and something about the types of programs and projects that Humans for AI have been working on to increase diversity. Yeah, happy to. And, uh, yeah, you know, like Miriam said, you know, there's a number of different things that uh, I focus on, but this one was very close to heart. And it's one, again, just like trustworthy AI, I believe that, you know, every human should understand the basic concepts of AI so that when they read a newspaper article about AI, they know it. When there is, uh, when it's on, you know, when it is something that they need to vote on, when it's on their ballot, they need to know what those implications are at a very basic level. And it is, it, it, it doesn't happen, right? And you know, then I looked at uh, the teams that I myself was building, and I realized that, that there was not enough diversity in my team. And when I 
talk about diversity, I, you know, obviously gender and race are big ones, but for AI to be really robust, it needs neurodiversity, it needs cultural diversity, different educational backgrounds, different geographical backgrounds. The more diversity you have in your AI teams, the more robust and better and relevant it will be to a more diverse group of people, right? So it is absolutely just like trustworthiness is important for AI's uh, own growth. Uh, diversity in AI is absolutely crucial. And I didn't see any nonprofit that was focused on driving that base level AI fluency. The reason uh, you know, diversity is important obviously is to mitigate bias, but also make that AI product or AI tool robust. And uh, what I realized is there were AI education programs, but they were focused on making uh, people, uh, you know, become data scientists or data engineers. Uh, they were very focused on a technical career path. And we know that, you know, AI teams have project managers, QA, product managers, UX designers. And, uh, you know, yes, AI at its core is, you know, is all about math and STEM, but you still need, uh, you know, these different skill sets. So the goal of Humans for AI is to provide basic fluency to, hum uh, to women and URMs and surround this homogenous group of data scientists with diversity. So we are not trying to you know, uh, make anybody into data scientists, force them to do math or you know, a subject they may not be as interested in. But if you are interested in art or are creative, you know, there is a pathway for you to become a human machine interface designer. But the best way is to get you, you know, understand what is AI all about. So, you know, we are, the, uh, so a lot of programs we run is around awareness and education and really partnering with universities to provide that basic AI fluency training, which can get you started on that journey, which can equip you to, you know, understand what the rest of the world is talking about when they say AI or machine learning or deep learning. These are all big words too. Uh, you know, uh, people like my parents, you know, they do not understand to a large extent on what I do, right? And for them to be, have a basic understanding because they will be voting on regulations that come for it, they do not understand. So the people who are most likely to be left behind, I want all humans to be part of the AI journey so that we can really get the full power, the full impact, the full benefit of AI for all of humanity. Well, thank you for helping push that forward, not just aspire for it, but helping us realize that important goal. And we hate to bring this conversation to a close, but we know that we need to given the time. And so we will close out by asking the question that seems the perfect follow-up to what you just said and one that we close out each show with. If you had a magic wand, so you are without limits and you are offered this wand to help achieve one wish in uh, helping us realize trustworthy AI, what would you wish for? I would wish for that there was there is a universal AI fluency, AI literacy program where just like every every person learns their letters or alphabets or you know being able to speak 
or read, you know, if they can understand the core concepts of AI or something as simple as how does their phone work? What are the different AI, you know, tools in there? Uh, a basic universal AI fluency training is something that I would wish for. Well, I think we all agree with that. And, and hopefully at some point we can um, help realize that. Fina, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been so enlightening and such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Bina. Well, Kay, as we thought, Bina gave us so much to think about. She's such a deeply thoughtful leader in this space, and I love how she breaks it down for us in such important ways, as well as thinking about other ways she can contribute uh, beyond her day job. What were some of the key takeaways for you? Well, I think the amazing thing about Bina is that she knows she has all this um, fabulous technical expertise but she's also thinking about the wider impact on society and how important it is for AI to succeed for us all to think about the things that you and I think about all day and how you socialize that with everybody. One of the big takeaways for me is obviously the work that she created through Humans for AI, but also, you know, that point that she makes at the end, her wish would be that there is a universal curriculum that everybody does so that they can understand the basics of AI and how important that is in building trust um, and being able to get all the benefits from AI. So I think those were two things from me, but so much to take away. What about you, Miriam? So much, as you say, and I, I love how deeply technical she gets. She breaks down these concepts we're always talking about, accountability and trustworthiness, and gives organizations specific steps they can do to attain that goal, as well as making the business case uh, that we all need to achieve these goals. Uh, I love how she talks about right in the get-go, when you're thinking about the ROI, have a separate column, think about how could this go wrong? Uh, and the other question that you know we often talk about in this space is, should this be an AI solution at all? Is this something where we should bring AI in uh, or does that column of, of what could go wrong lead us in another direction? Uh, just because AI can be used doesn't mean it always should be. And so that column that she instructs us to add is, is so seminal. Um, and, and just so many of the ways that she frames the argument in, in, in very approachable terms, um, as well as uh, clear practical steps, thinking about, as you and I often do, the speed loss um, and, and where we need to put in those guardrails, where it's helpful for organizations to lead, which is a lot of the way, where we need to get the public up, up to speed, as she talks about with you, as you just mentioned, with the, the nonprofit to help make sure there's more diversity, uh, how policymakers and others all have a role to play here. So I think there's something for everything and everyone in, in her discussion today, and I'm so grateful we got to talk with her. Absolutely. Yes, thank you. It's been wonderful again uh, to be back and doing this with you. It's so great to have you back, Kay. Welcome. It's great to see you, and I look forward to our next conversation. Take care. You too. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 